Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Our passage today comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again uh, to Redeemer Church. Uh, My name is Michael Badger, and uh, I am one of the elders here. But uh, So we actually just finished up walking through uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, Paul finished that up for us last week. And uh, as you can tell, today we're going to be diving into the book of Hebrews. Um, Now, I I do want to address the elephant in the room. I think we need to just kind of get it out of the way now. Uh, And that is, how how does Moses make coffee? He brews it, okay, all right, you happy, Zach, we said it, okay, now I don't want to hear that joke for the remainder of this, you'd be surprised how often that joke comes up when we're, when we're going through the book of Hebrews, it's ridiculous, so no more, all right, we said it. Uh, okay, well, so I want before we actually dive into the actual text itself, I wanted to kind of give us just a little bit of background information for the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews doesn't actually give us uh, an author. It doesn't really tell us who it is who actually wrote this book. Uh, there are several theories that are out there. Some people say Apollos wrote this book. Some people say maybe it was Titus. Some people think that maybe it was Luke. I think maybe one of the the best theories that is out there uh, is that it was a sermon that was preached by Paul that was then later written down by Luke. And the reason why some people think this is because the the, the type of uh, Greek grammar and the syntax, the way it's all put together, uh, is very much like the Gospel of Luke, the same kind of uh, the same kind of Greek that's used in there, the same kind of way of ordering sentences. But the theology itself is very much set up like one of Paul's letters. And so one of, the, one of the biggest theories that's out there right now is that it was a sermon by Paul that was written down by Luke, but that's not an airtight theory either. There's some, some holes in there as well. But overall, it, it ultimately doesn't matter. We believe that this book is an inspired book that was uh, breathed out, as, uh, as uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, breathed out by God Himself, and that's it's inspired, and it's infallible, uh, and it's inerrant. Uh, now, the purpose of Hebrews, why this book was written to begin with, I think is really summarized well by the ESV Study Bible. And it says it this way, It says, Christ is greater than any angel, priest, or old covenant institution. Thus, each reader, rather than leaving such a great salvation, is summoned to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. So I think, I think the, the whole book of Hebrews is really summed up well with that statement. And this is really what the author wants to get across. And this book was, was written to a group of primarily, if not all, Jewish believers. And he wanted to remind them that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Covenant. Right, Everything that was in the Old Testament found its fulfillment, found its completion in Christ Jesus. Every prophecy, every every office, every series of rituals, all were to point and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. 
And so no matter the difficulties, no matter the trials and tribulations that they were experiencing because of their faith, it was all worth it because of the worthiness, because of the superiority of Jesus. So this is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Now, it's, it's especially wonderful book for, for us as, as modern-day Christians, as, as non-Jewish Christians, because we can sometimes have a tendency to, to want to kind of disconnect the, the Old Testament from the New Testament. We can sometimes, as, as uh, modern believers, have a difficulty seeing the through line there. We think that they're completely separate from one another. But the book of Hebrews really aids us in seeing that these two halves of the Bible are inseparably linked by this this scarlet thread of Jesus that runs from the opening pages of Genesis all the way to the, the closing lines of Revelation. It's all one story. It's all God's story. It's all about Jesus. And Hebrews aids us in connecting the dots between the Old Covenant promises and the New Covenant fulfillments. Now before we dive in, I pray that uh, you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for just the immense privilege of being able to gather here together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, this is such a, a beautiful morning and not just because the sun is shining outside but because we get to we get to dive into your word we get to read this this amazing uh, lord god inspired you inspired book that you have left behind for us so that we can come to know you and we can come to love you and so lord i pray god that your spirit is the one that guides us this morning God, there are so many things in our lives and in our minds right now that want to pull us away from this moment. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit keeps us locked in and keeps us focused on your word. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them up to Hebrews chapter 1. And as you're reading this first chapter, you'll you'll see that it has a very simple yet important purpose. There's really just one thing that the author wants to convince you of, and it is what permeates throughout the rest of Hebrews, and that is Christ is superior. That's that's what chapter 1 is all about. Christ is superior. And if you get nothing else this morning, I want you to get that. Get that Christ is greater than all. And the author of Hebrews wants Jesus to be the center stage and to never leave the spotlight. And so in chapter 1, he makes it clear exactly who Jesus is. And in doing so, he lays out some of the fundamental aspects of his identity. And in this one chapter, we are met with Jesus as the superior prophet, We're met with Jesus, the Creator King. We're met with Jesus, the Great High Priest. Jesus, the the Radiant Imprint. And and Jesus set higher than angels. And all of that is not just just within chapter 1. All of that is just within the first four verses. It's unbelievable. And the author here is really doing two things. Two things in these first four verses that we're going to be looking at today. And the first is what I said a moment ago. He's making sure that we are clear about who and what Jesus is. And secondly, he is introducing us to the themes that we're going to be exploring in more detail in the second half of chapter 1 and for the rest of the book of Hebrews. Now these first four verses are are really kind of like a a sample platter of the full course which is to come in Hebrews. And so this morning, I want us to kind of briefly look at each one of these statements that are within the first four verses and what they say about Jesus so that we can have a clear picture of who He is. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, open um, open them up to Hebrews 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through the first half of verse 2. 
which say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. There's a philosophy of thought out there, a philosophy or a way of thinking about God that is called deism. Deism. And deism is a, a very cold philosophy. It says that God created the world, created the universe, and everything within it. But like a kind of like a watchmaker, like a good watchmaker, all this God did was wind everything up and then just step back from it and let it well, run its course. There's, there's no involvement, there's no action within history, and not a word comes out of the mouth of the deistic God to anything that it created. Now, in contrast to that, Christianity is an extremely warm faith. Unlike the deistic God that remains silent, the one true God didn't remain silent. Our God chose to speak to His creatures. And friends, this is, this is such an immense gift that I don't want any of you to take for granted. You see, there are certain things that, that we can know about God by simply taking a look at the world around us, right? I mean, that's, that's what Romans 1 tells us clearly. It tells us that we can, we can know that there is a God, and we can know certain aspects about Him, His, His, His uh, being all-powerful. We can know His divine nature. Romans 1 tells us that, that, that makes, uh, the, the nature around us, the creation around us, makes that clear to everyone. There's, no, there's not a single true atheist in the world. Everyone can see clearly that God exists, but there is also an incomprehensibility, an uh, incomprehensibility to God that we can also sometimes forget. He is so holy, He is so set apart, so above us, that if left to our own devices, if left alone, we can never come close to bridging the chasm that separates Him from us. And friends, that is why it is so important and, and why it's so beautiful that we have a God that speaks. He Himself stooped down from heaven to give us revelation about Himself that we would never have known otherwise. It is through His speaking that we, that we know of His love. It is through His speaking that we know of His righteousness, that we learn the greatness of His character. And through His speaking, it is revealed that He desires relationship with His people. Those things can't be known by simply looking at the world around you. John Calvin has such a great illustration of this display of God's love in choosing to speak by saying essentially that even though God is so high above us, so infinitely transcendent in all of His ways, He yet, like a loving parent, bends down to us and speaks to us in ways that we can understand because He wants us to know Him. God speaking to us, Calvin says, is like a loving parent baby-talking their child so that they can understand Him. And so friends, it is incredibly important to know that without God speaking, we can never know Him. Not, not truly. So brothers and sisters, re rejoice. This is, this is a cause to rejoice because God didn't choose to stay silent. He didn't choose to stay distant, all, even though He could have. And He would have been just in doing so, but He didn't do that. He doesn't remain silent and uninterested in creation. The exact opposite. God speaks. And that is cause for rejoice. Now verses 1 and 2 speak of two different epochs two different epochs, or two different periods of time in which God has spoken. The first was long ago, 
And the second was in these last days. So you have long ago and you have in these last days. And the way God chose to speak in each of these time periods was different. They were, they were categorically different. You see, before the events of the New Testament, the time that was, that was long ago, God's typical way of speaking to His people, who the author of Hebrews refers to as the fathers, was through human spokesmen. God didn't choose to use the winds to carry His message. He didn't uh, appear visibly to every single Israelite and, and speak to them one by one. Rather, His usual way was to call a prophet and then inspire that prophet to speak and to write to the people what He wanted to be said or wanted to be written. And when the people of Israel, the fathers, heard and understood what the prophets were saying, or, or even when they heard, read what the prophets had written down, they were hearing God speak. They were hearing the Word of God. Now, what is so amazing, I believe anyway, is that God did not have one uniform way of speaking in those times long ago. The verses, or the verse rather, says, in many ways God spoke. He spoke in many, many different ways. Now, I for one am extremely thankful for this. Because you, you can see this clearly as you walk through the Old Testament. Not only did he, did he speak to the fathers using dreams and visions and, and angels and, and burning bushes, but he spoke through the prophets and the other inspired Old Testament authors in a variety of literary genres. And again, I am extremely thankful for that. Because at times, God spoke using the form of what's called historical narrative, such as in, in Genesis. Other times, He used uh, apocalyptic prophecy, such as in Daniel. And other times, it was beautiful poetry, such as in the Psalms. And so our ever-speaking God spoke to the fathers in all of these variety of ways, I'm convinced, to show the breadth of His love of communicating and building relationship with His people. And we, we get to benefit from that as well. Not just the fathers, but we get to benefit from that. Because God is still speaking to His people through the Old Testament. You know, even though you're a Christian, you shouldn't just dismiss the Old Testament. You shouldn't focus on, on the second half of the Bible. You should be about the first half as well. But what is so wonderful with, with how God speaks to us in all these variety of ways is it means that if you get bogged down and have a hard time making your way through the commands of Leviticus, you can have your heart filled by a song of David in the Psalms. How wonderful is that? Now, the visions of Daniel may, may give you a headache and, and make you wonder what in the world is he talking about, but you can find solace. You can find, you can find spiritual nourishment in the Proverbs. How amazing is it that the Lord chose to reveal and speak to the fathers in such a variety of ways long ago? And what a blessing it is that we get to benefit from that now. But all of the revelation. All of it. All of the revelation that was given to the fathers long ago still had a purpose. They had a grand overarching purpose. And that was to point to an even better revelation that was to come. In verse 2, it begins with, but in these last days, in these last days, Meaning this, this new era of God's revelation, the, the era or the age of Jesus and the church. He has spoken to us, meaning believers, by the Son. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so where before God chose to speak and reveal Himself through the means of, of other human beings, through the prophets, God now reveals Himself to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. God chose to send His divine Son down into space and time, down into the pages of history, becoming truly man and truly God, and take on the role of prophet Himself. He took on the role of prophet Himself. Now John the Baptist, he was actually given the title of the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets by Jesus. Jesus Himself said that of John the Baptist. 
But it was Jesus himself who was the even greater prophet. And John the Baptist himself actually explains the difference between the previous prophets that came before Jesus and Jesus, who is the ultimate prophet. And John the Baptist says in John 3, verses 31 through 32, in explaining the differences between the old prophets and Jesus, he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So you see, there's a vast difference in the vantage points between the earthly prophets, such as Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Baptist, and that of the greatest prophet, Jesus. The earthly prophet is finite with a, a human mind and no knowledge of the things above, uh, beyond what God Himself has revealed to Him. But Jesus, on the other hand, who is from above, hears the words and sees the works of God the Father and God the Spirit because He Himself is a member of the Godhead and has an intimate and immediate relationship with them. It's totally different. Therefore, he is able to reveal God to us in ways that the previous prophets simply were not able to. That is what makes him the complete fulfillment of the entire office of prophet. And this is what Jesus himself says in John 15, 15, when he told the disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for that I have heard from my father, for, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. God's speaking in the Old Testament was incomplete. It was waiting for its completion in Jesus. This is what the Sumerian woman at the well knew in John 4.25 when she said, I know the Messiah is coming. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. He will tell us all things. And that is certainly true. Jesus came and spoke and revealed to us the mystery of the Gospel, right? What it means to be a member of the Kingdom of God. He taught us what being a disciple actually looks like. It actually means. He taught us the depths of God's law on the Sermon on the Mount. He revealed His plan to come again and make all things new, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus is the superior prophet speaking to us. God the Son condescended to the earth, took on human flesh to be the greatest self-revelation of God. And friends, He continues to speak now. He continues to speak to us now. Not in an audible voice that you hear if you squeeze your eyes closed tight enough and just, just kind of wait. But rather, He speaks to us clearly in His Word. In the Bible. As, Hebrew, as Hebrews 4 tells us, is living and active. And we so often want to hear the Word of God speaking to us, right? And I think we, in this culture, sometimes think that the way we hear that is to try to just look inwardly and just hear the voice of God within us. But friends, that is not how it works. We've been given the Word of God right here. This is how God has chosen to speak to us now. God did not go silent right after Jesus ascended. We have His Word and He wants to speak to us. John Piper once said that there were times in his life where he got frustrated because he felt as if God wasn't speaking to him. But he noticed that when that occurred, it was because his time that was spent in the Bible was less than stellar. And then he came to realize that complaining that God isn't speaking to him is like living in his home state of Minnesota, which is called the land of 10,000 lakes, and complaining that there are no lakes because he couldn't see them from his bedroom window. If we complain that we do not hear from God and at the same time know that we are neglecting our Bibles, then we are like the man who complains that there are no lakes in Minnesota, right? If the man just got out of his room and drove a mile, he would see a lake. There's 10,000 of them, right? If we simply open our Bibles, 
we spend time in them, friends, we would hear God speaking. When you read Scripture, man, we sometimes have such a, such a legalistic understanding of what Bible reading is supposed to be like. But if we actually approach Scripture as a conversation with God and recognize that when we are reading our Bibles, we are entering into a conversation with God, how differently would that change your whole experience of reading the Scripture? God longs to speak to His people. But He does not do so apart from His Word. He doesn't do so apart from the Bible. You may get, you may get these feelings from the Holy Spirit. You may get promptings from the Holy Spirit. But friends, if you're, if you're getting those promptings from the Holy Spirit apart from reading your Bible, I hate to tell you, it's probably indigestion. Take advantage of what we have here. And be ever thankful that our God speaks. But the author of Hebrews wanted to be sure that his audience did not mistake Jesus for simply a, another human prophet. Even though Jesus was truly human, he was also truly God. He wasn't and isn't who the Muslims believe him to be, just a prophet, a great prophet, mind you, but no more than a prophet. He isn't, uh, or he wasn't and isn't what Mormons believe him to be, a created being. But the author wanted to be sure that his readers had a correct understanding that while Jesus was truly human, just as I said a second ago, he was also truly God. He could not have been the perfect prophet without that. And so his goal in the following verses is really just to magnify Jesus. To put him in the proper place of the highest exaltation. Read with me verses 1 and 2 again, but this time we're going to read the rest of verse 2 as well. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now first, He is appointed the heir of all things. Now this is something that actually follows from Christ being God the Father's only Son. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit more next week. But in Israel, it was the firstborn Son who had the right of an inheritance. And this was God the Father's appointment, His purpose in creation, that, that His Son should be blessed and glorified in receiving all things. So He has this inheritance. He was given the inheritance of all things. But not only are all things His because the Father appointed Jesus as the heir, but all things are His because it is Jesus who created them in the first place. Despite what the Mormons believe, Jesus is not a created being. He is not a created being. We learn that clearly in John 1, verse 1, right? John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Who was the Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there before Genesis 1. He was in eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit. There never was a moment where Jesus, the Son of God, was not in existence. He is not a created being. And far from it, actually, rather than being a created being, He is the great Creator Himself, right? When you open the pages of Genesis, you, you don't just see God the Father speaking. You don't just see the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. But you see all things coming into being, bursting into life by the creative power of God the Son, who brings everything from nothing. Now an interesting side note is that the word for world here in verse 2, the word world in verse 2, is actually not the, the typical Greek word used for world. It's actually the Greek word 
aeon, aeon, which means age or ages. Now you may, may be thinking, well, hold up a minute. That's kind of scary. But it actually makes this statement even stronger. So the idea here is that Jesus is not only responsible for creating matter, the physical stuff around us, for, for creating the physical world around us, but that he created the ages as well. He created time itself. And everything that happens within time is under his authority. You see how, how more of a complete picture that is than just, than just worlds? He, he did create the world. He created everything within it. But he also created time itself and everything that happens. All the events that go on in the world are under his authority. So in other words, there is nothing, nothing that is not dependent on Him for its existence. Not even time, not even the events that happen within it. And as its Creator, He is all of creation's rightful Lord, whether those in creation want to recognize it or not. Now both of these truths of Jesus' authority and creative power are found all over the New Testament, such as in Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16, which says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, and not just through Him, but also what the verse thing says, or the, what the verse says at the beginning as well, that, that he was the inheritor of all things, that they were made for him. They were made for him. And friends, these passages, both in Hebrews and Colossians and elsewhere, are simply saying that Jesus is the creator king. Jesus is the creator king. He is king over nations. He is king over all peoples. He is king over the oceans and the winds and the stars. He is king over the angels and Satan and demons. He is king over cancer. He is king over Alzheimer's and heart attacks. Friends, there is nothing. There is not a single molecule, a single atom, not a single physical or spiritual entity that does not find itself under the authority of Jesus Christ. Nothing. We don't live in, in what's called a, a dualistic universe where the forces of good and the forces of evil are doing battle against, the, against each other and, and it could go either way. That's not the picture that we get from Scripture. The picture that we get from Scripture is that God is King. And he is a victorious king. And those Jewish Christians who first received this letter, they were being tempted to renounce their Christian faith. But Jesus fulfills and gathers to himself all that the office of king ever meant in Israel. He is the true king. He is the Lord of all. He is the better David. And the faithful of the people of God are those who worship and serve Him. And friends, His kingship is just but one reality of our Lord that fuels our courage and our faith in Him. So Jesus is the Creator King. And then the author continues in verse 3 by moving from the power and the kingship of Jesus to even more explicit statements about His deity. Listen to verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Just pause there for a second. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the bright, shining light that reveals all of the goodness all the majesty, praiseworthiness, holiness, and beauty of God. The author had in mind here what is often called the, the Shekinah glory of God, the visible representation of the presence and holiness of God. And this, this glory was seen in the pillar of smoke and fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt. 
It is the manifestation of God's glory that filled the temple in 2 Chronicles 7. And the author here is saying that Jesus is the fullest and truest radiance of the incomparable glory of God that those previous things pointed to. Now, in regard to Jesus being this this radiance of the glory of God, I believe Spurgeon sums it up perfectly. He says this. He says, Shade your eyes, for you cannot look upon this wondrous sight without being dazzled by it. Some commentators say, and it is not an inappropriate analogy, though we must not push any analogy too far, that as light is to the sun, so is Jesus to the glory of God. He is the the brightness of that glory. That is to say, there is not any glory in God, but what is also in Christ. And when that glory reaches its climax, when God the ever-glorious is most glorious, that greatest glory is in Christ. Oh, this wondrous Word of God, the very climax of the Godhead, the gathering up of every blessed attribute in all its infinite glory, you shall find all of this in the person of the God-man, Christ Jesus. I can't really do much better than that, so I'm not going to try. He is the radiance of God's glory, and He is the exact imprint of His nature. Now, the idea here is that of a coin. When it comes to the exact imprint of his nature, the idea is of a coin which bears the exact imprint of the mold that was used to cast it. And what the author is telling us is that whatever God is, Christ is. Whatever God is, Christ is. All of the divine attributes, all of the holiness and moral perfections, all of the power and divine nature of God, His eternality, His omnipotence, His omniscience, all of it is found within Jesus Christ. All of it. Just as the coin perfectly represents the mold, Jesus represents God. He is God. Now this is actually extremely important when it comes to Jesus being the greatest prophet. As the Son, Jesus is a better revelation than that which came through the previous prophets because He is not only similar to God the Father and not only able to just speak His words, but He is the exact imprint of His nature. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that He is the image of the invisible God. Only in the person of Jesus can we actually see God Himself revealed. Now, have you ever, when you're reading the Gospels, have you ever really thought about that? Really thought deeply about that? Every, every word that Jesus spoke, every, every gentle word, every rebuke, every interaction that He had, every action that Jesus took reveals God to us. That's why Jesus is the superior prophet. Because it wasn't only His words that we received, but it was God Himself. That's why Jesus says that if you've seen Me, you've what? Seen the Father. There's no greater prophet of God than God. Then verse 3 continues. Verse 3 continues saying, And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The universe is not self-perpetuating. It's not like a clock that you can just wind up and step back and leave it alone. Everything exists and continues to exist only by the power of the Son who upholds it. The only reason we still breathe, the only reason the sun still rises is because of God's or because of Christ's sustaining power. And if He chose just for a moment to not uphold the universe in which He created, everything we know would cease to exist. So He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so we have seen how God is the Almighty Creator King. We have seen that he is the greatest prophet, but now the author of Hebrews gives us a brief glimpse of how he is the superior priest. 
He says in the second sentence of verse 3, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now under the old covenant, there was a special day, the, the most important day in the life of Israel. And this day was called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would go into the temple of God and he would be carrying with him an offering of blood. The high priest would then take this offering of blood from sacrificed bulls and he would go into the place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. Now, only the high priest was able, uh, able to enter into the Holy of Holies and only during this one specific time of year and only after he himself had gone through a litany of ritual cleansings so that he could be clean before the Lord. Now, some of you may know already that the Holy of Holies in, in the temple was separated from the rest of it by a giant thick curtain. And this giant thick curtain was to symbolize the separation that exists between the holy God and sinful human beings. Now the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies during the special day of atonement and he would sprinkle this blood offering onto the mercy seat. Now, now the mercy seat actually wasn't uh, like a chair. You know, sometimes when we see that, the mercy seat, and we read it in the Old Testament, we think of it as, it's like it's an actual seat. That's not the case at all. It was essentially the lid to the Ark of the Covenant that was stored in the Holy of Holies and represented God's presence. And so when you read mercy seat, think lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And so in the presence of God, the high priest would take this blood offering and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as an offering for forgiveness for the sins of Israel. However, this was an imperfect sacrifice and an incomplete offering. It is one that had to happen again and again and again because soon after the Day of Atonement, a moment after the, the offering was given, what would happen? They would sin again. Under the Old Covenant and under this Old Covenant ritual, the forgiveness of sin was not complete. Rather, it was meant to point the people of Israel forward to the coming of a greater high priest who would enter into the presence of God and not need to be ritually cleansed because he himself would uphold the law of God perfectly, not being tainted by sin to begin with. And he would not offer the blood of bulls or, or goats like the earthly high priest, but he would offer his own blood, the blood of the spotless lamb, for the ultimate, complete forgiveness of the sins of his people. And of course, Jesus was that great high priest. And he was not only our priest, but he himself was the offering who offered His own blood on the sacrificial cross so that those who believe in Him may be purified, may be made clean and able to stand in the presence of God. No longer tainted by sin, but spotless. And friends, what is so wonderful is that this sacrifice of Jesus is not one that has to happen again and again and again. Because remember, verse 3 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so friends, this is meant to say to you and to I that, the want, or that, that once that was done and finished, once Christ offered himself on the cross for our sins, once he rose again from the grave, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, which means that his work is finished. It is finished. When it comes to our salvation, it is done. And of course, there's going to come a time where, where He comes again, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. But as far as it relates to salvation, to the forgiveness of sins, the work is complete. And there is no longer any need for a continued sacrifice. And that work is finished. He has sat down. And if you believe in Jesus, you have been made clean. And there's, there's nothing that can now stain the robes of Christ's righteousness that He has draped over you. 
And friends, the forgiveness of Jesus runs deep. It runs deep. It runs down to the, to the furthest and darkest recesses of your heart. In fact, we're told that we, we get brand new hearts. And it runs wide, covering every sin of your past, every sin of your present, and every sin of your future. All of it has been made clean. You have been forgiven of it all. His atoning work on the cross is done, and He now dwells in the highest conceivable place of honor and dignity at the right hand of the Father. Let me read to you Romans 4, 4 through 8. Paul says this, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And really pay attention to this last part. Really, really hone into this. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. And brothers and sisters, because of the work of our great high priest, you, you, if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you are that blessed man of Romans 4. That is who you are. Fundamentally, to the core of your being, you are the blessed man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How amazing is that? You are forgiven. You have been cleansed. And you can stand before the presence of God unashamed. Verse 4 then says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we're going to be exploring more about what this verse means next week as we dive into the rest of chapter 1, because the rest of, of <clears throat> chapter 1 is really what verse 4 is all about. He just kind of launches into this explanation of why Jesus is superior to the angels. And, and this kind of may seem like a no-brainer to us. You know, of course, Jesus, since He is God uh, Himself, is superior than the angels, but this was actually pretty important during the first century church, especially to many Jewish Christians, because there was this Jewish heresy that was going on during the time that, uh, that essentially said one should seek out angels, should try to speak to them, and, and should essentially try to give them worship or, or to try to gain a special kind of blessing from them. But the author of Hebrews wanted to make a clear distinction between Jesus, the Son of God, and angels. And as wonderful as angels are, and as grateful as I am that angels exist, Christ is yet superior. And all of our attention, all of our worship should go to Him alone. Now again, we'll be getting into more detail on that next week. So... <clears throat> This first chapter really opens up firing on all cylinders, right? It kind of hits the ground running. But I want you to keep in focus the main purpose of the author in reminding these early Jewish brothers and sisters who Jesus is. Do you remember the main purpose? It's because they were being tempted to deny their faith. And remember that, that the author's purpose was to, to magnify the name of Jesus to remind these Hebrew brothers and sisters in Christ that He is the fulfillment of everything that the Old, Testament pro, uh, the Old Testament promised. He is the fulfillment of the office of prophet, of priest, and He is the great High King who created everything. And therefore, the Christian faith, Jesus Christ, is worth holding on to, even if everything else in life is lost to you. And it's actually my prayer that, that we go out, all of us in this room, 
who, who claim to be believers, we actually go out of these doors and we actually live life as if we truly believe those words. Right? We talk about that all the time. It's one thing to, to hear a sermon and get really excited and say, yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus fulfills all of these things. But then leave the doors of the church or leave the building of the church and live like we've completely forgotten what we were just amening a second ago. And I know it's hard. And I know it's scary to, to actually go out there and live out your faith because we live in a culture that hates the truth of Jesus Christ. But friends, since, not if, but since Hebrews 1 through 4 is the absolute true word of God. Friends, we can proclaim the gospel confidently and courageously because we serve the one and only true king, Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. God, what an amazing amazing gift that you have given us in your word. How spectacular is it, Lord, that, that you speak to us, God. That you desire relationship with, with us, fallen and sinful and rebellious human beings. Even more so, God, how wonderful is it that you died on the cross in our place to take on the, the wrath of the Father that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserved. Also, that we can live in eternity with you. But God, I pray, Lord, that you give us the courage and the boldness to go out and live life as if we truly believe that. God, I pray that you don't make us just simply Sunday morning Christians. Lord, I pray, God, that that the truths that we learned this morning, that you just emblazon them on our soul and make us uneasy, make us uncomfortable until we go out there and we share it with others. Lord, we need you, God. We need boldness. We need courage. We need more measures of faith. God, I don't want to just give lip service to proclaiming the gospel. I don't want to just sit around and commiserate how, how terrible this world is and not actually go out and rejoice because, Lord, I, I serve the, the living King. God, give, give us, Redeemer Church, Lord, give, give the believing visitors that are here this morning Got a, a fire in their stomachs for you. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.